0: Good morning. It's been really, really, really good to be here this morning. It's good to see people uh, and it's a joy to worship our God together. I trust you felt that the joy of sitting together, uh, of reading the word, of of praying, uh, sitting around the table, and trust that the Lord will even uh, meet with us now as we consider uh, the word together. Uh, As you know, we're walking our way through the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, And these seven churches really are a picture of the universal church. There are churches there, they are diseased, uh, they are on the brink of being rejected by Christ. There are churches that are compromised, they're a mixed bag of both good and bad. And and then there are churches that are healthy and and pleasing to the Lord because they receive no uh, condemnation, no rebuke. And this morning we have the joy of looking at one of those churches at the church at Smyrna. A church that is healthy and pleasing to the Lord because it receives no rebuke, no condemnation. And it is an example to us this morning of a healthy and pleasing church that ought to challenge us with regard to our own expectations of church. We might expect that a church that is pleasing to Christ is a church that enjoys peace and prosperity. Yet what we see here in this particular church is that the Lord allows in his wisdom for this church to face tremendous affliction and trial and persecution, which ought to challenge us this morning uh, as we consider this particular uh, uh, church. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me and let's read this letter of Christ to the church at Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, 8 to 11. This is the words of the living God. Hear it. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, uh, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. At least so far in the reading of God's Word, may He reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's quickly pray again. Heavenly Father, it's been so good to worship You this morning with Your people, to, to be reminded that You have saved us together to belong to the body of Christ that we've been purchased by the precious blood of the Lamb who, who, who washes away the sins, our sins. Listen to the words of our Savior as we consider and listen in on this letter to Smyrna. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us and lead us and guide us, that you challenge us, and you Lord that you'd lead us again to to cherish Christ, to love Him, to have our affection stirred for Him. And that we would give all for the sake and give up all for the sake of Christ. Help us, we pray, help me in my weakness, help us in our weakness, in our waywardness, to be focused upon you. We pray this in His name. Amen. It was AD 161 before a Roman uh, pre-council, the Roman authorities, and there stood an elderly man, 86 years old, and he was given this ultimatum, deny Christ or die, deny Christ or die. Well, what did he respond with? Well, he responded with these famous words. He said, 86 years I've served Christ and He has never once done anything wrong to me. How can I blaspheme my King who saved me? Well, they warned him again. They said, deny Christ or we'll feed you to the animals and burn your body. And again, he famously responded, what are you waiting for? Do what you please. And they did exactly that. They, they, they bound him to a stake. They burnt his body. And when the flames didn't engulf him soon, quick enough, they, gush, they, they stabbed him with a sword and, and blood gushed out and, and quenched the fires. And so they had to untie him and, and burn him again until he was nothing but ash. Now who am I talking about? Well, some of you would know. I'm talking about uh, the church for, or the polycop. Uh, the famous uh, church father who not only was a disciple of the Apostle John, but he was the bishop of Smyrna. Uh, see, see that, that story of Polycarp. his example perfectly illustrates uh, something of what was going on in the church at Smyrna, but also illustrates something of, of the Christian's experience throughout history. It's important for us to understand that suffering, the suffering that Polycop and the early church experience is not something out of the ordinary. No, suffering, whether it is suffering through persecution or suffering by living in a sin sick world, suffering is part and parcel of what Christianity and the Christian life entails. Suffering is a reality that the church must endure. Paul says this in 2 Timothy three twelve. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ will be persecuted. Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. See, there is nothing extraordinary about suffering. There's everything extraordinary about our comfortable Christianity, but not about suffering. If you are a Christian, you need to know that you will be confronted with suffering. Again, that might be persecution, or it might just be the consequences of living in a sin-sick world. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ when He was incarnate; He suffered, and your believer, guess what? If you follow him, you too will face suffering. And Matthew Henry said this way, Christ's followers cannot expect better treatment in this world than their master had. And see, that's what we see in in, in this letter, in, in this church at Smyrna. Here is a church that found itself in the fires of affliction. In verse 9, we are told that they were confronted with tribulation. That word speaks of them being oppressed and pressured by suffering, a suffering that causes pain and hardship. We're told that they were laid low by poverty. And that word is quite strong. It, it speaks of extreme poverty, destitution even. And they were bombarded with slander. And not only were they reviled and, and mocked, but they were reviled and mocked with the purpose of bringing harm to them. See, here is a church that is suffering. And it is to this church that Christ comes. He comes to encourage. He comes to to strengthen them. He comes to, to prepare them for what lies ahead. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this letter is helpful to us too. Although we might not be suffering, although we might not be persecuted by Roman authorities, this letter helps us and prepares us for the reality of suffering. But let's be honest, Uh, we might not be confronted with the suffering they faced. We might not, like Polycarp, be told, deny Christ or die. We might not have our possessions taken away because of our faith in Christ, but we will face suffering that will in different ways tempt us to call into question God's character and call us and tempt us to to deny Christ. Whether it is disease that ravages your body, whether it is the evil acts of sinful men, whether it is the relational fallouts and pain and abuse that you face, whether it is losing your job and your savings and your security, whether it is slipping into that slew of despond and depression, whether it is natural disasters, whether it is being maligned or mocked, whether it is the death of a loved one, all of us will face suffering that will tempt us to want to, to question God. And deny Christ, whatever suffering, whatever trouble, whatever affliction it will cause us to question Christ and and turn from him and in subtle ways deny him. See, this happens in a number of ways, and we, we have a few, few examples of this. I think of the, the Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews is written to. Here we have Christians who, who confess Christ, but they were facing persecution and they were tempted in light of this persecution to, to go back. To go back to the old religion, go back to Judaism, to, to deny and, and to forget all of this Jesus business. Or, or think of Asaph, right? Asaph in Psalm 73 who, who compares his, his despair and, and his, his troubles with, with the prosperity of the wicked. In his suffering, he is tempted to to just let go and and to move on and to to walk in the paths of wickedness. Do you see how suffering and affliction, when not properly understood and properly processed, can tempt us in different ways to deny Christ? And so given the reality of suffering, given the, the danger of slowly drifting away from Christ, Jesus comes to the church, not just to Smyrna, but the universal church. And He calls upon her to be faithful. To be faithful unto death. To be faithful no matter the cost. And not only does does He tell her to be faithful, but He comes to the church and He gives guidance. Guidance in, in not just persevering through persecution, but guidance in surviving your suffering surviving those afflictions that envelop you on every side. And so as we consider Jesus' letter to this church at Smyrna, I want you to see how Jesus draws near to this church and how he guides them through suffering. Although he's addressing those who are suffering in persecution, I think this letter applies to to suffering in general. And so there are a few things I want you to see from this particular passage. First thing I want you to see is that Jesus comforts the suffering. Jesus comforts the suffering. Jesus gives comfort to them in verse 9. Look at what it says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, the first thing that the suffering need to know is that Jesus is not unaware and and unconcerned and unempathetic to your suffering. The exact opposite is true. He knows what suffering is. He knows what you're facing. He knows what you're struggling with. On the one hand, He knows about suffering because He is sovereign. In verse 8, we find this description of Jesus. It says that He is the first And the last. Now that's a description from Isaiah 44 verse 6 describing God. And here it is describing not just the divinity of Christ, but, but the sovereignty of Christ. The one who is from the beginning to the end. The one who reigns sovereignly over all history. He sees it. He knows it. And he guides and governs all of it. See, Jesus knows about suffering because he sees it. In fact, he sees it better than you do. When we suffer, we often struggle with, with understanding how to, to process it. We, we struggle to see and understand why we look, we look cannot look beyond our pain to the bigger picture. It often leaves us distressed and, and worried. Yet Jesus sees and he understands and, and he knows the beginning from the end. And therefore, we can find comfort because we know who's in control. We know who is sovereign over it. And what a comfort this is to us. Listen to this prom- promise in, in Psalm 56, verse 8, that, that Clinton pointed me to. You're the sufferer, he's being comforted by the fact that God knows. He understands and, and he keeps track of our suffering. Listen to this promise. It's, the psalm says there, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And so the point is, what comfort this ought to give us is that God knows. He takes notice of it. He's not unaware and, and unsympathetic to it. See, Christ knows your troubles. He, he knows the sufferings that you face. But not just that, on the other hand, he knows about suffering because not only is he sovereign, but he is a sufferer. Again, look at verse 8. He's described as the one who who died and came to life, which speaks to the fact that, that the eternal Son of God not only entered into our humanity, but in our humanity suffered. He died. He experienced our troubles, our afflictions. He experienced that great enemy, death. Jesus knows about suffering because he has suffered. As some of you would know, uh, to co- really comfort someone at times, it is, it is very difficult if you haven't experienced what they've been through. Now, I remember uh, we used to go to, to uh, hospital visitations on a Monday night and we had one particular lady in our team and, and she survived cancer and, and she beat it. And, and she, unlike many others, was able to really connect with those struggling with it. why because she experienced it she was a survivor she was a sufferer and so he's with Christ he can sympathize because he knows and you know what he can sympathize better than any of us because unlike us who are sinful he was without sin see in a sense as sinners who live in a sinful world we get what we deserve We deserve the the, the pain of sin that, that so falls upon us. That is, we deserve the suffering and the pain that sin has brought. But Jesus is blameless. He is sinless. He doesn't deserve it. Yet He endured its consequences. Can you even begin to imagine the depths of suffering when you suffer as an innocent person? See, Christ understands suffering better than all of us. And and see, the point in all of this is, as both a sovereign and a sufferer, Jesus perfectly knows our suffering. And and therefore, He can perfectly comfort us. Who better to comfort you? Who better to, to find strength in and hope in than this Christ? Dear friend, to whom do you turn when the purple hits the fan? Where do you go when you hear that bad news of, of that disease? Where do you turn when, when you face the prospect of, of losing a loved one? There's no one to turn to but Christ. No one better to turn to but Him. David Paulson recognized this danger of, of wanting to trust other saviors in our suffering. He, he says this in one of his books. He says, when suffering, you need to, when suffering, you need to seek help. Uh, this help comes first and finally from the living God. He hears, He helps, He strengthens, He vindicates those who rely on Him. If you look anywhere else first, you will set yourself up for failure. He says this, you will get snared in bitterness and revenge because you're spurning God for your pride. You will flee in avoidance and addiction because you're spurning God for your false refuge and comforts. You will develop perverted dependence upon others because you're spurning God to trust in man. See, there is no greater comfort to be had than in Christ. And the point is, you need to turn to Christ. You know, Hebrews 4:14 4, to 16. I trust that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Beloved, how do you survive affliction? How do you survive suffering? You turn to Christ for comfort. He comforts the suffering. The second thing I want you to see from this particular passage is that Jesus counsels the suffering. Jesus counsels the suffering. He, He gives counsel to them in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you, into prison that you may be tested. And then for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. So the second thing that the sufferer needs to know is that Jesus cares for how you suffer. He cares for how you think through your suffering. See, Jesus gives three imperatives here, three commands, and each of them counts. In each of them, he he counsels us in how we ought to think about suffering. Firstly, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And the point is, you need to know that suffering, as I've said, is normal. As is often said, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And here, Jesus is, is warning the believer that suffering is to be expected. It cannot be avoided. It's on the horizon for you. And this is important for the Christian to know, in this life you will have suffering. Jesus said, or Job said, God says in Job 14, man is born of woman, is few of days, and full of trouble. And Think of Jesus, how he prepares his disciples in John 16. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. Even Paul in First Thessalonians says that we must not be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you were destined for this. And so given that suffering is, is to be expected, Jesus calls upon those in Smyrna to not be afraid. Don't be afraid or surprised when affliction comes. But, but secondly, he also says in verse 10, in, Behold, the, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. And, and the point is you need to know that not only is suffering normal, suffering is a test. Notice that Jesus says that the tribulation will only be 10 days and, and most commentators agree that that speaks of the fact that suffering will not be indefinite, it's for a limited time. And who limits it? Well, by Christ. Christ limits it. He is the one who is the first and the last. He is the one who is sovereign over all. all and all of this tells us that when, we, when it says that we are tested or they will be tested, it's not referring to, to Satan testing them. It's referring to Christ testing the church. That tested means that word there means to be put on trial, to to be examined. And the idea is that suffering often reveals what is hidden, it it exposes our our strengths and our failures, It, it puts on display our character that we are so good at pretending or performing away. I think of it this way. I can't think of many illustrations, but think you had a, a fish tank and it's nice and tranquil, but if you put your arm in there and you start whirling it about and stirring, you'll see all the muck start rising. Right? That's what suffering is. It is God stirring our hearts to reveal what is in the heart. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this to Israel, Your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he may humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. In Deuteronomy 13.3, he says, even Israel is told explicitly, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so what we need to know, beloved, is that suffering is to be seen and approached as an exam. A test, an opportunity to display what's going on in our hearts. Or in, in the words of First Peter, it is the test that tests the genuineness of our faith. The, the test that tests the, the authenticity of our belief in Christ. And what is the, the goal of this exam? What is the goal of this suffering? Well, it is to expose our hearts so that we again would be renewed in our faith. That we again stop trusting ourselves and and again look to Him. It's motivating us to renewed endurance. Thirdly, Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And again, we need to know not only is suffering to be expected, it's normal, not only is suffering a test We need to know that suffering is a race. The reference there to the crown actually refers not to the crown of a king, but the crown of an athlete, the the wreath that is given to to the victor. The same word is used in in 1 Corinthians 9.25 where Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive not a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one. And so, when Christ says that that they must be faithful unto death, He's calling them to keep the faith. He's calling upon them to run the race with endurance. He's calling them to be steadfast. There are other passages that that make the same claim. Uh, We see trials and, and suffering and affliction is meant to produce in us steadfastness and endurance. Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. James 1, verse 2 and 3, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, you, when trials of various kinds meet you, for you know that by testing your faith, it produces steadfastness. And so, do believe believer, recognize that suffering calls for greater faith, it calls for, for greater running in this race. But, but to get back to my, my, my main point here at the second point, is what Jesus is doing here, he's giving us counsel. He, he's wanting us to, to reframe suffering in our minds. He wants us to, to see and understand affliction differently so that we can survive it, so, so that we can persevere through it. Let's be honest, as John Piper once said, we often uh, waste our suffering. Instead of expecting it, we, we get surprised and upset. How dare God? We, we, instead of examining ourselves, we, we grumble and complain. Instead of exercising greater faith and greater trust, we want to blame God and we want to turn from Him. And that's not what Christ wants of His church. He doesn't want us to think that this life will be free of suffering. No, He wants us to think through our suffering, recognizing that He is sovereign over our suffering and that He's governing all things towards a good purpose. You know, one of the promises that I've done a lot of banking on is the promise of of Psalm 84 verse 11 where where the psalmist says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If that is true, beloved, and I believe it is, then what good can come from suffering? I'll consider very quickly three benefits of it. Firstly, suffering helps us in our justification. It helps us to to be removed from all those false saviors, from trusting in ourselves and our own strength. It helps us to see that there's only one Savior who can save us. And it's by faith in Him that we are saved. Suffering matures us in our sanctification. It it burns away those those sinful desires that we so cling to. It takes away those helps, those things we trust in. And, And suffering prepares us for glory. It's fitting us for heaven. John Piper has made this comment. The suffering of sickness and the suffering of persecution have this in common. They are both intended by Satan for the destruction of our faith, but governed by God for the purification of our faith. Dear friend, beloved church, is that how you see suffering? If not, then heed Christ's counsel. Understand that suffering is to be expected. Understand that it exposes your heart. And understand that it's meant to call you to exercise greater faith, greater trust. And so the second thing I want you to see from this is that Jesus counsels for suffering. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus crowns the faithful. Jesus crowns the faith. Not only does he give comfort and counsel, but he, he promises uh, the giving of a crown. Look at verse 10 and 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, here we see that not only does Jesus give comfort and counsel to those who are suffering, but he gives this beautiful promise that he will give them the crown of life. See, Jesus is, is wanting to motivate us in, in our faithfulness. He, he's wanting to motivate us to, to greater faithfulness and greater perseverance by pointing to the glory and the honor and the life to come. Paul does the same thing in in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? he? He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, remember what Paul says in in Philippians 3, 13-14, he says, Forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. See, what Paul and the Scriptures teach is that the hope of the future motivates our faith in the present. Dan Wickard, in one of his counseling books, Counseling the Hard Cases, he says this, hope is not defined by the absence of hardship. Rather, hope is found in God's grace in the midst of hardship. Hope is found in His promise to give us a future. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling these believers in Smyrna, do not be afraid, do not give up, because there is a crown awaiting you. There is a crown of honor and glory, a crown of everlasting life. You may lose all that you have. You may suffer tremendous affliction. You may be disregarded and despised. You may lose even your life. But the promise that Jesus gives you is that your story, your life doesn't end in your suffering. There is glory and honor and life to be had. And so I hope you see what the suffering needs to know. The sufferer needs to know that there is hope at the end of suffering. And we say it this morning. Hope will guide us through death. Believer, we have hope. And there's that hope that, that fills us, that strengthens us to persevere. Now, William Gurnall, the Puritan, said this way, Hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in their eyes, sigh and sing in the same breath. Beloved, where is this hope to be found? It's to be found not in us. It's not to be found in our efforts and our works and, and our faithfulness our own wisdom. No, it's to be found in the giver of this promise. It's to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the first and the last. The one who died for us and lives again for us. The one who has the keys to death and it is the one who is the resurrection and the life. I, I, I love that thing we sung earlier that phrase, love has won, death has died. Believer, what hope we have in Christ. It is this Jesus we need to turn to. It is this Jesus in which we have this hope. And therefore let us cling to Him. Let us be faithful unto death for Him. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a, it's a great doctrinal and devotional tool, but it's perhaps most famous for its first question, which summarizes, I think, the, the hope of the Christian. It asks this question, what is our only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Dear believer, do you have that comfort? Dear friend, do you have this hope even in life, even in death? Do you have Christ as your faithful Savior? And you need to see what's at stake. There is on the one hand a crown of life for those who cling to Christ and will not let go. But then there is a second death he speaks of which in the book of Revelation is a reference to the lake of fire and the lake of eternal torment and destruction away from Christ, away from the goodness of God. That's at stake. And the hope is, dear believer, you might suffer death in this life, but if you have Christ, no other death can touch you. Not the second death. See, all in all, not only does this Jesus give comfort and counsel, but this Jesus gives a crown of life to those who remain faithful to him. And it's in that Christ that we hope. Now, beloved, it's at this point that I I believe that the letter of Smyrna is not only a a helpful guide to us in our suffering, but it is also a, a personal challenge to us. These believers in Smyrna were willing to to lose all for the sake of Christ. They were willing to bear whatever reproach for the name of Christ. They were willing, like Polycarp, to rather die than deny their king. And and, do you know what that makes them? It makes them incredibly rich. Did you notice what Jesus said to them in verse 9? I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. See, they may, have, they may not have anything else, but they have this. They have Christ. And, and therefore, they have everything they need. And that's why we've titled the sermon, The Church Who Had Everything, because they had Christ. It, it's interesting, in the first church, in the church at Ephesus, their problem was the fact that they abandoned their first love Yet here we find a church that in a sense was so devoted to their first love, so devoted to Christ that they're willing to abandon all else for the sake of Christ. And see, that's what makes the church rich. That's what makes the church truly prosperous. That's what makes the church pleasing to Christ. And the challenge for us is this. Are we rich? Are we willing to... To forsake all for Christ? Are we truly pleasing to Christ because whether we, we, we lose all, we'd rather lose all than lose Christ. We'd rather suffer all the sufferings of this world than, than suffer the loss of this Jesus. Are we truly pleasing to Christ because we'd rather die than deny Christ? Would we rather be despised and disregarded by this world then to then deny our Christ, to deny our Lord. Beloved, we need to recognize for us to be truly rich, to us to have everything we need, we need Christ. Our only hope in life and death. Remember what Christ is for you, remember what Christ has done for you. Two Corinthians eight says this, it reminds us of this. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Dear believers, may we be a church who regardless of all that we have or regardless of all that we do not have, may we be a church who are rich because we have everything we need in Christ. I started telling you the story of of polycop suffering. Let me tell you another story and close with this Story when, when the emperor Valens was persecuting the church, he, he, he took hold of Eusebius, one of the church fathers. And, and he confiscated all his goods, uh, and he threatened uh, torture, banishment, even death. And he called up upon him again, deny Christ or die. Eusebius responded famously, he said, he needs not to fear confiscation who has nothing to lose. All oh, believer, in a sense, that's us. If you have Christ, in a sense, you, you have nothing to lose. You have everything you need in Christ. And so let us be satisfied in Him. Let us find our joy and riches in Him. Let us rather deny all else than deny this Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word, even for a letter like this to the persecuted church. And we first want to thank you, Lord, that we have not faced this persecution. In a sense, we have enjoyed real peace in this land. We have enjoyed a comfortable and, and a stress-free, in a sense, Christianity. Yet, dear you Lord, know, we recognize that in this comfort we have often become lethargic, We've often neglected Christ and we've allowed ourselves to be turned away from Him for the sake of all the joys and delights in this world. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we've just considered this example of this church at Smyrna who are willing to forsake all things for Christ, we pray, dear Lord, by the help of your Spirit that we would be motivated by their example. That we too would be willing to forsake all for Christ, whether it be our sin or the sinful pleasures of this world, we pray that we would find our hope and joy and satisfaction in the Lord of glory, the one who died and the one who ever lives. Oh, dear Lord, may you be pleased and glorified in us as a church, and may we be truly rich in Christ. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.